Thank you, Pastor Darren. I love your heart for the church, and I love your heart for this congregation. And I hope that you uh, sense the love of your Father God in all of your hearts today, to know how much he is for you. We don't think about that enough. We too often think about how God must be disappointed in us. And I think we miss the whole heart of God about how much he is for us. So just embrace that truth again, no matter where you're at, no matter how cynical you feel or how much you're struggling, the truth is he's for you. He's for you. All right, thank you, Darren, for loving on us and praying for us today. Well, let me add my good morning to all of you. Uh, My name is Don, Don Fraze. I serve here as the transitional pastor. And it's my privilege to lead us through this process, and particularly in this month, doing this short sermon series that I'm calling Hope and Possibility, A Season of Thanksgiving. Now, as Darren introduced us earlier, you must be wondering what kind of weird Thanksgiving series is being thankful for conflict and thankful for controversy. Well, sorry, I guess I'm just weird but I think we need to be thankful for those things. And so we talked last week about being thankful in conflict, and this week we're going to go to being thankful in controversy. So maybe your first question is, so what's really the difference? So I had to do a little bit of dictionary study to make sure I'm clear on this, but how do we go from conflict to controversy? What's really the difference? All right, well, conflict, by definition, would be a serious disagreement or argument an incompatibility between two or more opinions, principles, or interests. Conflict, right? Now, controversy is kind of the bigger picture, bigger, less personal issues that can be maybe more like a prolonged disagreement. Conflict, back to conflict, is more about how hurt or offense creates broken relationships and how we need to face it, understand it, and then walk in repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation, right? You got all that last week. You got that case. Controversy is more about issues or practices that result in differences of opinion that may lead to conflict, but usually develop disunity or camps. Isn't it discouraging when we think of whatever group we're in, and especially when we think of the church being divided into camps? and often because of controversial things that we disagree about. We all lament about how it should not be, and yet we all know the reality of it. Today we talk about how do we be hopeful, thankful people in the midst of that, and cry out to God for humility and spiritual wisdom in how we walk this through with each other. Now, before we go there, though, and Brent, remember, you can't put up the next slide till I say. So... Um, I've done a little bit of internet research on top controversies. So what I want you to do for the next, I'll give you 30 seconds to talk to one or two people beside you and see how many you can come up with. What do you think in our culture today are the most controversial things out there? Go.
Okay, so, so far from what I've heard, it sounds like laughter and uh, smiling are the biggest controversies out there. So that's good. I'm glad to see that out there. Now, just in case you're worried, I'm not going to teach about flat earth theory, but I just, you know, just in case you were wondering. All right, Brent, are you ready? So here's the list. There they are. Most popular controversial issues, and this would be North American-wide. So abortion, gun control, animal rights or animal testing, capital punishment, the death penalty, vaccines, surprise, surprise, climate change, euthanasia, assisted suicide, and illegal immigration. This is by no means the comprehensive list, but these are the ones that seem to just collectively, from website to website, rise to the top. And guess what? We're not going to talk about any of these today. <laughs> All right, so now here's your next assignment. Now the next one, Brent, don't put this one up yet. The next slide is going to be, what are the top controversies in the church? Okay, you got 30 seconds, talk about it. Top controversies in the church, go. Oh, now you're getting serious out there, I'm nervous. <laughs> Okay, it looks like they're done. Okay, Brent, put it up. Top controversies in the church. Gay marriage or LGBTQ issues, abortion, women in leadership, type of worship music, surprise, surprise, spiritual gifts, especially tongues, baptism, politics from the pulpit. I wonder why that one's on there. And alcohol. So I don't know what you think, but it's interesting to compare the lists. It's interesting, earlier in the week, I, I uh, bounced my, my lists off of Darren, and uh, the first thing he said, interestingly enough, was he said, it's almost like the first list is about life and death issues, and the second one, not quite so much. And I thought, boy, is that ever telling as to what we get bogged down by in the church. Anyway, just, just an interesting thought. You know what? I'm not going to really talk about any of these either. <laughs> So when we think about controversies, again, there's just a side of it that they are and they will be and that we've got to find a way to live with them as followers of Jesus in a very complex culture that we live in. Now, way back, the Apostle Paul had a young apprentice who was leading a church and he had a very direct instructions for him about what to do with controversies. Are you ready? Here it is, 2 Timothy 2:23. Have nothing to do with stupid and senseless controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Wow. Wouldn't it be great if it was just that simple? I know most of you are probably thinking, okay, well, that's nice to say, and if controversies are just sort of the stupid, senseless, fringy ones, no big deal. But what about the important ones? What about the ones that are foundational to our faith that are still controversial? How do we deal with those? Good question. How do we deal with those? Can we live out this verse, and yet can we walk with integrity in our faith? Tough issues. All right, well, while you're thinking about that, I'm gonna, we'll go next to our main text to talk about a historical controversy that I find absolutely fascinating and also rather hilarious all at the same time. And it's found in an Old Testament book called Ezra. So if you want to turn there, we're going to be in Ezra chapter 3. Now, before we read, just a little bit of context. 
So Ezra is a book about when God's people, the Jews, came back from 70 years of exile back to their land. And so Ezra is the book about how they come back to the land, they begin to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, begin to rebuild all their their farms and vineyards around, and then they eventually start to rebuild their temple. So that's what the book of Ezra is about. Now, as I said, 70 years prior to this moment in Ezra, um, the city of Jerusalem was attacked and destroyed. The walls were destroyed, the city was destroyed, and most importantly to the Jews, their temple was destroyed. And this was the famous temple built by King Solomon, and it was amazing. It was, in a sense, one of the wonders of the world, this beautiful temple. And so the biggest loss that this people had was the loss of their temple. It wasn't just the physical building, but everything about it was the loss of their religious system, their identity, and everything about them as a people. So you just got to get how huge the loss of that temple was to them. So now, 70 years later, after a whole generation plus of exile, now the Persian king of the day, a king named Cyrus, decreed that the Jews could return to their land, and after two years, they started to rebuild their temple. So the scene that we are going to read about is when they have a little bit of a worship service dedication as they begin work on their temple. So let's read it together, Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments were stationed to praise the Lord with trumpets, uh, with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asherah, with cymbals according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. So let's imagine the big worship time. And all the people responded with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of families, old people who had seen the first house on its foundations, wept with a loud voice when they saw this house. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted so loudly that the sound was heard far away. So you're wondering, why do you find that scene so funny? I find it a hilarious scene. So you've got to imagine this worship event, and there's just this foundation there. Half the people are pumped and excited and they're shouting for joy because we're rebuilding our temple and half of them are weeping because they remember the old temple. They can never imagine that this one's ever going to look anything as good as it and they are just overcome with grief and there's so much weeping and so much shouting and praising. Other translations say you could hear it for miles away. That was what was going on. So, What did each of these generations see when they were at this ceremony, this worship time of the foundation of the temple? You see, the older generations and the leadership that knew lots about Solomon's temple, all they saw was the loss of past glory. The weeping came from seeing the loss of past glory. And yet for the younger generations that were hopeful of the future, that's what they saw. They saw future hope. Two very different perspectives. As I think of all these people looking at just merely a foundation in a city that was still largely in ruins, and I just am struck by 
how much faith and vision was required to actually see what was ahead. Question. Will past glory cause us to weep or give us hope? Now, this past week, I had some fun reading Bridgeway Swift Current MB Church History. I looked through all these books, saw hilarious pictures of a lot of you when you were much younger, um, people I knew from years ago that used to go here, and I was sending pictures to my friends of, hey, hey, here you are in 1963, this is hilarious, and had a lot of fun. Anyway, I got to read also a lot about your history, and one of the things I found interesting in thinking about a group of people at a dedication service. Now, if you look at the plaque when you come in the building, If you haven't noticed, it says that this church, Bridgeway Community Church, was built in 1977. Now, a year before, when this was just an empty lot, you had a dedication service. And from what I read, at this dedication service, they actually marked out in the dirt where the sanctuary would be and where the stage would be. And they put chairs up here and had the choir all here and people seated. And I just am thinking of that congregation way back I don't know, a year or two before 1977 when the church was built, at that dedication service. And some of you had faith and vision for what you couldn't see yet. Yeah, you had a pretty good building over on Winnie Street over there. I think it's a daycare center now. You weren't moving very far, but you were excited about a new building and what, and what it would inspire. Now, as I read more about, about your history at that time, this, there's a few details that I found kind of interesting. So back up a little bit to 1973. So your church had a business meeting in 1973, and again, you're still in the Winnie Street location over there, and what was brought up at that church meeting was, we're out of space. The average attendance for Sunday school that year was 133 people, and your Christian education director at the time was like, we need more space. 133 average for Sunday school, not bad, eh? Wonder what this morning was. Probably nowhere close to 133. But that was one of the early reasons that had the church starting to vision and think about we want more space to reach more people, reach more kids, reach more youth. Found it interesting too that after your church, so your church was built in 1977. So between 1977 and 1983, I think that's only six years, your membership went from 220 to 320. Pretty impressive, right? Smaller community, but a church with vision and mission. And you grew quite remarkably during that time. There's an, there's an interesting picture in there and an article that was in your local newspaper of the dedication service of this building. And I had to read it twice because I didn't believe it at first, but, uh, but according to your, your newspaper, there was like a thousand people in this room. That back area was open and filled, people in the foyer, people crammed in, And there was a thousand people in this room to witness the dedication of this building. I've talked to a lot of you about those years. You had a a pastor that was very, very respected and very gifted and very visionary. And those to many people were the glory years or the golden years of Bridgeway. Now, if you were a part of that and you celebrate those years, I go right on. Celebrate that. That was awesome. But here's the question for some of you that... We're a part of the glory years. When we look now at a, maybe a spiritual foundation 
after a time of, of conflict and so on? Are you weeping? Or are you rejoicing for what God could be up to for your future? And for those of you that know none of, none of that history, are we hopeful for the future, even in the midst of controversy, even in the midst of conflict, even in the midst of a very confusing and difficult and often um, antagonistic culture that we live in? Do we still believe in a God whose plan was to come himself as a human, live this life, lay down his life, and then his strategy to reach his creation that he loved was his bride, the church, that this movement would change and transform the world. And yeah, we are one church in millions, but we are a part of that. Are we hopeful for what God is up to? Now, having some more fun with church controversies. So I did some reading of of uh, some Saskatchewan MB church history and uh, found a few quotes that were kind of fun to me. So here's one from the 1920s from some deacons reports and it said this, it's the next slide there. When the purchase of a piano came to be discussed, there were many concerns voiced in the church. Some thought it too costly and others feared we would lean to the world. Ooh. So true. We still have the same discussions today. Too costly, lean to the world, must be bad, don't do it. Anyway, another one I found from 1948. Round trays with individual wine, sorry, the gasp is my word, glasses were introduced at the communion service and foot washing was discontinued. Aren't you disappointed? Don't you wish we still had foot washing at every communion? Well, if you would have gone to church before 1948 and in other denominations, it actually lasted a lot longer, but that would have been a regular part. Oh, and other changes came about as well. This is from 1951. Families started sitting together. Now, some of you are going, huh? Yeah, believe it or not, younger generation, there was a time when the men sat on one side and the women sat on the other side. Because, of course, if you sit together, you're too distracted and you can't follow the sermon, right? You know, so... Yeah, and you know what? Believe it or not, as silly as those things may sound to us today, some of you in the back there that have my hair color or no hair color, <laughs> you know they were very controversial back in the day. They definitely were. Now, there's also some more serious ones. So I, I, I have a book, and actually I found it in your library. By the way, Olivia, that was a great, inspiring, where is she, library speech today. We're excited about it. But in your library, it's a book called, let me get the title right, Leaders Who Shaped Us, and it's about Canadian MB history from 1910 to 1920. And it's quite an interesting read of a lot of leaders across our country. Well, the first chapter is about a leader by the name of David Dick, who was a, one of our own, a Saskatchewan leader. And he was a key leader in our church, a conference leader, a church planter. And his ministry started around, around 1910, and he was a leader during that era. Um, he spent most of his time kind of in what I call the Menno Belt north of Saskatoon um, and was a part of a country church that no longer exists today. Some of you maybe heard of it. It was called Brotherfield MB near Waltime, and uh, he was a big part of that church. Now, reading in there, I found this fascinating. They held a, a I believe it was the provincial conference that summer in their church in 1911. They had 1,000 people there. I didn't believe it, so I looked up the book again. Sure enough, yes. Can you imagine in 1911, a thousand people at a country church north of Saskatoon at a church conference? Almost hard to believe, but that's, 
That was, kind of, that was kind of the scope of the ministry at that time. And this leader, you can read all about him, an incredible foundational leader um, in the Mennonite Brethren Church. However, with all of the good he did, there was also some controversy mixed in with him. And, and, and this, the, uh, the author of the book talks about, he says, that the greatest shadow on Dick's ministry, and then he goes on to talk about him, but basically... This spiritual, strong leader of the church at that time was also known for opposing immigration of Mennonite refugees who were fleeing Russia in the wake of the communist revolution in the 20s. Now, for some of you, you're going, huh, whatever. But maybe for some of you, you're going, how could a godly leader who was like a prominent church leader that that shaped our Mennonite brethren history be the kind of person that could oppose the immigration of desperate, hurting people? Doesn't that totally sound like a contradiction of the gospel, a contradiction of scripture? And I can hear some of you going, hmm, but don't you know, Pastor Don, that immigration has been controversial all through time, including now? Yeah, I guess I kind of do know that. And isn't that interesting? Some of the controversies then, they look different now, but controversial issues, right? So as I thought about that, and, and even the fact of how it can mess us up when we when we think about godly people being on opposing sides of these controversies, like we talked about last week. There's so many more I could talk about here. I don't know how many of you know that tonight at uh, Eastside Church of God, the Swift Current Ministerial is hosting a inter-church service to um, begin the week of truth and reconciliation. Now, as soon as I say that, I'm sure there's some of you that are going, Isn't that great that our ministerial is leading the way in gathering the church together to talk about truth and reconciliation? And there's probably some of you that are going, whoa, that just makes me way too nervous, that's way too political, I have my views on it. Pretty controversial, right? Better not talk about that one anymore, but it's true. I just have to say TRC. I was a part of a church that almost split over a initiative about this issue. Yeah. Or what about the one that I think has impacted all of us? We've all come through the COVID time. Let's hope we've come through. Let's hope it's all over. But I have yet to meet, well, I probably have, but most often when I talk to people about their families, there's division and controversy in families over vaccines. Who's vaccinated, who's not, who thinks this about it, who thinks that about it, and then how all of the political views get mixed and mingled into it. And, yeah, and it's just been so sad to me how many families have gone through pain and even at times have been ripped apart over the controversy of vaccines. I'm not saying that it isn't important. I'm just saying it's sad to me how controversy can cause so much pain and so much division and create camps and families in relationships and friendship circles and sadly in churches. So again, we know the significance, we know the pain, and we know the reality. So as we think this through, and how we respond in being thankful people in the midst of controversy, is we have to decide how we're going to walk the tension. And what I mean by that is, there's a good friend of mine that always talks about the truth is in the tension. And this is another one of those issues where the truth is in the tension. And what I mean is, is here's the two tensions that kind of pull like this, and we need to try to discern the truth in the midst of that. And that is, 
there are some controversies that are like what Paul said to Timothy. They are wastes of time to cause disunity and we just need to get beyond them and, and be able to set them aside and not let them become dominant and unnecessary. There's that side of it. But then there's also times when there are things that are controversial that are key to our faith as followers of Jesus. So again, how do we, how do we hold that intention of what we let go of and what we stand for? And I think if scripture is gonna guide us in this, I would suggest to you that, it, that it's gonna come down to two key things. And I would suggest to you that those things are humility and spiritual wisdom. So let me just talk, talk a little bit about that. What kind of humility is gonna help us to face controversies in a godly way, in a, in a Jesus way? Romans chapter 12, verse 16 to 18. I wanna read for you as awesome verse on this idea. It says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. These are powerful, powerful words. I think the kind of humility that's being talked about here is a humility that's all about actually deeply listening with compassion. One of the things that saddens me so often in our culture today in general and often in the church is I feel that we've stopped listening. I feel that so often we, get, we live in what I would call our echo chambers. We constantly live in a world of people and ideas and social media and friends or whatever that all tell us what we want to hear and what we like to hear. And we only read books from that. We only listen to podcasts from that. We only would, would listen to other people talk. And we, we live in this echo chamber of just what we want to hear and what our view is. And what's even sadder to me is that once we have lived so long in our echo chamber that we're so convinced we're right and everyone else is wrong, rather than being able to listen anymore, we now just believe that everybody who doesn't think like me is wrong or evil. And that seems to me our culture today. Where is the listening to each other with humility? Where is the ability to listen to others' ideas and have an open heart and an open mind? And yeah, being free to disagree but also respecting the person enough to listen with compassion, to listen beyond the words to people's lives and experiences and background and heart and reasons why they're saying what they do. Isn't that what followers of Jesus do? Let's not get so angry and so afraid and so polarized and so self-righteous that we've figured out the right way that we start to make enemies of people. I think that's the opposite of the Jesus heart. I think that's the opposite of what we're taught in Scripture about humility. We need the kind of humility that says we listen with compassion. And I've, I've bolded that last line there because it says, if it is possible. It's not always possible, I know. But whenever it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's a hard call. And yet I think it can just simply start with being compassionate listeners, teachable people that walk in humility. So hard to do. 
But as I try to challenge myself in this, I pour that out to you. So I suggested that to, to walk this road of controversy and to be thankful followers of Jesus in the midst of it, we need humility and we need spiritual wisdom. Let me take you to one more scripture. It's known as the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, go down to verse 12 and 13 says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. When this chapter is unpacked in its fullness, often read at weddings and other events and talking about what love is, one of the key teachings here is that, you know, we can have all the Bible knowledge and be the greatest Bible scholar, spiritual knowledge people around. But if we don't have love, it's nothing. We can have all the spiritual gifts to where we are just the most amazing, spiritually gifted person ever. And if we don't have love, according to the scripture, it's nothing. You see, to have the kind of spiritual wisdom we're going to need to walk together and to walk in the times we live in, is we're going to need to have this kind of humility. The kind of humility that says, you know, right now, we see in part. When we get to the point where we are really, really proud about what we know, and how what we know is so superior to everyone else, know that we're in trouble with pride. Remember that as much as I so admire all of us having a deep desire to wanting to study and know more and be sure, and all of that is so good, but let's always hold that openly and humbly before our God. When we, when we approach the scriptures, understand that they are ancient literature, written over a huge period of time by many different authors, so many different genres of scripture. To think that it's just so simple to say, I just read my Bible and do what it says. That's how simple it is for me. I know that that at one level can sound really honoring, but we need to understand that scripture is deep and historical and full of so many different genres of literature and it takes lots and lots of of courage and study and history and everything to understand fully what God is wanting to say through ancient text. All I'm trying to say by that is let's keep humble in the whole area of, the, of what this verse is talking about. That yes, we see in part, but even the greatest theologians will always tell you we still only see in part and we're not going to see fully until we're face to face with God. So that doesn't mean that we don't strive to learn and strive to be accurate and strive to find the truth. Of course we do. But always approach it from a place of humility. That right now in our humanity, we see in part. We see dimly, like is being said in this scripture. And to remember that no matter how vast our knowledge becomes, no matter how passionate we get about what we believe to be right and wrong, no matter how gifted we get in whatever spiritual gift God might have given you to serve in the church or in the body, that all of that void of love is nothing, according to the scripture. And these three remain, faith, hope, 
and love. But the greatest of these is love. One more question as we close today. A question I've been asking myself this last week. How much mental and emotional energy goes towards the things that I'm angsty about versus the things that I'm hopeful for? Wow. I spend a lot of mental and emotional energy on the things I'm angsty about. And then when I ask the Lord, where is the hope? Why does it seem like we as a culture and as a church are so void of hope and possibility? What does scripture say about what we put our minds to and set our minds on? Let's not keep walking out the the angry against everything Christian stereotype. How about the Jesus way of where sinners and everybody wants to hang around with him because he's so hopeful and so full of truth and love and reality that they're attracted to him and want to be with him. Are we attractors or are we repellers? And we sometimes get to be repellers because we get so angsty rather than living in hope. Can I encourage us? There's hope and possibility in the name of Jesus and in the bride of Christ, the church that he laid his life down for and called to bring transformation to his creation, to this world. And that's, that's our calling. And so, yeah, we've got to live with controversy. But let's fight and stand against useless controversies that just divide us and cause arguments. And let's focus on the foundations of our faith that are worth laying our lives down for. And to people who Jesus died for and laid his life down for, those are the priorities. That's the mission of the church. As we respond together today, you know, so often, I guess especially as a pastor, I get asked this question all the time, and it's often from people who are either new to faith or who are, are, would, would not call themselves people of faith. And often in their wrestle, one of their biggest questions is, okay, so what's the deal with the church? Like, why are there so many denominations? If you guys are right, well, then why are you so divided? Whew, tough question, right? I won't go into the answer today. But here's what I will say. We so often focus on what divides us and we seldom focus on what unifies us. If you do a study of denominations, it's actually quite discouraging because some of the reasons that some denominations started are so trivial over some small controversy and it's like, let's just start our own denomination. We're so quick to focus on what we differ on and so slow to focus on how we stand together. So how I'd, how I'd like us to respond today, maybe something that some of you have done and maybe many of you haven't, but I would like us to read together something that's called the Apostles' Creed. Now the Apostles' Creed um, goes all the way back to like 300 and something, when the church barely went from being this um, basically this illegal rogue movement that was constantly persecuted because it was an illegal movement to where the Roman emperor becomes a Christian and all of a sudden, overnight almost, Christianity becomes a legal religion and then becomes the religion of the state. And it was in that precarious time of church history that the church leaders and bishops all got together and said, what are we going to do? This thing could go out of control theologically all over the place. 
How do we keep the church united together in what we believe and what the scriptures have taught us to believe about Jesus? And so then they carefully together came up with what is called the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed has been read in many church traditions um, throughout time. And still even this morning, there will be millions of churches around the world reading the Apostles' Creed. And what I love about it, it's the foundation of what we believe. It's no matter what denomination of Christian we are, these are the core principles and beliefs of who we are as followers of Jesus, being the, uni- the true united church, the church of Jesus Christ. And so in this topic of being thankful for controversy today, let's close with this Apostles' Creed. So would you please stand with me? And I'll invite you to to read it with me. Now, if you can, try not to do boring, monotone, churchy sound type reading. Read it with a little bit of energy and gusto, okay? Because we are declaring the truths of our faith. And just for a moment, imagine just standing shoulder to shoulder with Christians of all denominations and all languages and cultures around the world and saying together, this is what we believe. I think that'll be exciting. I think that's going to happen one day. So let's read and declare this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again, He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and of life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Wow, that's awesome to hear you all pray that. So Lord, with this declaration... Lord, we declare as a church body here today. Lord, we declare as the church here in Swift Current. Lord, the church in Saskatchewan, the church in Canada, the church around the world. Lord, our brothers and sisters in so many countries. And Lord, together we stand with them to say that we believe in you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God Almighty, we worship you. Oh Lord, I pray for Bridgeway Church. Lord, as we walk through this time of healing, as we walk through this time of of maybe feeling like we're looking at a bare foundation, Lord, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, will pour hope into us. Lord, forgive us when we put so much energy into being angsty and not enough energy in the hope we have in you. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and fill your people? I pray, Spirit of God, that you would open up your scriptures to us and give us a love for your word. And Lord, with that, Lord, give us a deep humility to keep walking in submission to you and each other as we live this Christian life together. So Lord, thank you for uh, this time together to worship you and be together as family. And I pray this all in the name of the Father, Son, 